0: Does marriage make you miserable, or are married people generally happier? We discuss this and more with special guest Dr. Brad Wilcox on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking people's thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, a home for people who love to have fun thinking deeply. I'm your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, hopeful romantic, and with me as always is my miraculously married co-host,
1: Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and happily married man. Nice. Yes. Yes. As you often remind us. And don't you forget
0: it. Um, (laughs) um, And with us today is a very special guest. He is professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, whose whose research is regularly featured in the Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. Is a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, a think tank dedicated to studying and advocating for healthy families, and the author of books such as When Marriage Disappears, co-author of Gender and Parenthood, and author of the brand new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Available for pre-order now, wherever books are sold. He is the bold, the brave, the beautiful, Dr. Brad Wilcox. Sir, welcome to the show.
2: (laughs) It's great to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me on board.
0: Yeah. So yeah uh today we uh today we are discussing whether or not married people are happier so really happy to have uh dr brad wilcox with us today been following him for a while um but first nathan if people enjoy our discussion and want to engage with more of our content and meet fellow overthinkers
1: like themselves where can they go they can go to the overthinkersjournal.world where they can find out more about their hosts and send us all of their love and hate mail they can also go to the online private Facebook group called The Overthinkers, where we have almost 20,000 overthinkers just like yourself getting to great discussions, talking about all the fun stuff we talk about here and also posting lots and lots of intellectual memes. We (laughs) want you among our ranks. So please head over there. Um, If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review and sharing with a friend. It really does help us so very much.
0: Great. Well, really excited about this. Uh, Everybody ready to get started? Let's do it. Great. So as most people know today, more and more Americans are giving up or oh, giving up on or deprioritizing marriage. Marriage rates are close to an all-time low, down 65% since 1970. What a reason is being because a growing number of people believe that they will be happier without marriage or at least deprioritizing it in favor of other things. According to one poll, only 32% of young adults believe that marriage is essential for leading a fulfilling life, while 75% think making enough money is. And it's not hard to see why, with the spectrum of divorce looming large of our culture and culture makers from education, journalism, movies and TV to online influencers generally encouraging the idea that marriage is a recipe for, mis- in, for misery for both men and women. Articles in The Atlantic, New York Times, Psychology a Day, The Guardian and Bloomberg from The Case Against Marriage... Uh, uh, Yes, uh, this year, women said enough to modern marriage. Women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. The special skills, strengths, and advantages of singles argue that single people, especially women, are richer and happier than married ones because they can focus on their careers, interests, and friendships. Shows like The Simpsons and Everybody Loves Raymond have long portrayed a dim view of married life filled with frustrated wives and emasculated husbands. Meanwhile, online influencers like Andrew Tate tell men marriage is a trap for them, and actresses like Emily Ratajkowski tell women that they should get divorced early so they can enjoy their 30s single. And yet, not everybody agrees that marriage is a recipe for misery. Writers like David Brooks and institutions like the Institution for Family Studies argue that this dim view of marital happiness is wrong and that actually married people tend to be happier than the average person. So, Mr. Br- Dr. Brad Wilcox, uh, in your new book, Get Married, you argue that not only are married people typically happier than unmarried people, but that marriage is one of the best predictors of happiness in the American population. What have you found in your research that leads you to that conclusion?
2: Yeah, no, great introduction. Just, I think you kind of framed nicely kind of the, a lot of the discourse we're getting, not just in the media today, but online, like Andrew Tate, you mentioned, but even obviously on TikTok, there've been a lot of anti-nuptial themes kind of floating around on TikTok of late. Yeah. Um, and there's just obviously no question that I think everyone kind of knows marriages that have been disastrous. You know, people may have had their own experiences, marriage has been disastrous. Um, and marriage is hard. Um, but I think what a lot of these uh, media pieces, a lot of these, you know, TikTok, um, memes, what they miss basically is this idea that, you know, we're social animals and we're kind of meant to be with and for others, friends and family foremost, of course, among that, the whole kind of category of being social animals. And we see in the research is that when it comes to happiness, Folks who are married are about twice as likely to be very happy with their lives compared to folks who aren't married. And when it comes to kind of looking at folks who are in good marriages, and that's about, you know, almost two-thirds of Americans who are married today, um, they are 545% more likely to be very happy with their lives compared to their peers who are unmarried or their peers who are not in happy marriages. And what I find in the research that I've done using the general social survey, kind of a, a key goal of the social barometer is that nothing predicts happiness for ordinary women and men um, like a good marriage. Not money, not a good job, not sexual frequency, not religious attendance, not good health. I mean, literally nothing is sort of as predictive um, of happiness for ordinary Americans as is a good marriage. So I think you have to kind of just wrap our heads around this idea that Um, yeah, this is often tough to be married. Um, it's tough these days, I think to find, you know, a spouse oftentimes as probably you guys can appreciate. Um, but if you can find a good spouse and forge a good marriage, um, it means a lot when it comes to happiness, of course, to things like meaning, direction, uh, loneliness. And then too, you mentioned the Bloomberg piece. There are some folks who argue like Bloomberg. Um, and Andrew Tate on the sort of left and the right, that folks who don't get married are richer, but that's actually not at all the truth. What we see in the research that I've done is that as folks head into their kind of retirement years in their late 50s, um, if they're still married, they have about 10 times the assets as their peers who are never married and their peers who are divorced. So we just have to kind of appreciate that for most folks, um, forging a strong and stable marriage is a path to... Um, Happiness in the main, on average, and then also to uh, financial security as
1: well. This is really interesting, and you know, this is coming. I'm going to come at this from the the perspective of a married guy who who enjoys being married. I, I like my wife. I am a. I find that I'm a better person having been married. I look back to a few years ago before I was, um, and I look at the kind of the differences just personally in myself, and I see that marriage has. You know, yes, the the obvious things cause me to grow, cause me to become better. Um, But sometimes we overemphasize that. Um, I also really enjoy, and you you kind of pointed this out a few times, that there's a happiness that comes with being with a partner. But what I find is anecdotally, just speaking to a lot of people, and just like you were talking about, um, looking at TikTok, looking across social media, looking across kind of the uh, uh the perception of being in a marriage there's a real fear and a hesitance um there's these kind of these ideas floating around it that it's constrictive that it holds you down that it keeps you back and i think and i wonder and i'd I love for you to speak a little bit to this i wonder if if some of this and you can correct me if i'm wrong you are the the expert but from what i remember you know we saw uh in the kind of mid-20th century we saw marriage rates um start kind of decline we saw divorce kind of going up and i wonder that if a lot of kids particularly gen x and the millennial and the now the gen z generations grew up watching their parents fight divorce and seeing this picture this vision of marriage that really? was really detrimental one that was that you know if you engage with that you i want to stay away from that at all costs and then you have on the social um kind of the the the, the social messaging of uh don't uh the, Get tied to a man. I uh, don't get tied to a woman. They're going to hold you back, they're gonna hold you down. And so it's always interesting when we have statistics and you and you mentioned multiple statistics about the reality of how much happier people are to live with a person, to live with a committed person for an, a in a lifelong monogamous um, uh, uh, relationship. But sometimes I find so often studies don't translate to people's lived, quote, reality, right. what they right. what they kind of see in the world. And so what would you say to someone who is, you know, maybe they grew up in a broken family. Maybe, you know, all of the, even, you know, I can speak to this. I have plenty of friends who got married and did become unhappy. I'm lucky that I'm not one of them. Love you, Kelia. Um, But, you know, there are, you know, we have seen this around us. And, um, you know, then we have some uh, some articles come out, like as Joseph, you referenced um, that, oh, no, you know, this, it'll be better to be on your own. What would you say to people who, hear the studies but don't see that correlate to their um, their anecdotal experience um those kind of things
2: yeah that's great Nathan I grew up in the 70s and 80s you know and I mentioned in the beginning of the book that the vast majority of my friends as a child um and parents who were either divorced um, you know before I met them um who, who got divorced after I met them so divorce kind of surrounded me growing up you know, um in connecticut in the 70s and 80s and i think that was true for a lot of you know young adults um we came of age in that period now we've actually seen divorce come down since 1980 um, yeah. and you know that's 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 one piece of kind of good news in, in the book is that folks who are kind of getting married today your odds of kind of making it are certainly well above 50 percent um yeah. it's important to kind of keep that in mind but there's certainly been plenty of us who have kind of seen A lot of dysfunction and chaos and instability in the marriages and families around us. And that sort of makes you obviously more sober um, at best and sometimes pretty pessimistic at worst when it comes to going ahead with this idea of marriage. Um, So I think it's important to acknowledge that there are risks out there. And then one thing that, you know, my book obviously points out is that I have this phrase, defy the elites. And some people kind of have kind of scratched their heads about that, including Matthew Gracius. He's like, you know, elites are doing pretty well when it comes to, um, you know, their own marriages. Actually, that point is made by me in the book. You know, he hasn't read it yet, so he doesn't know the point. But the point I'm making is that our elites are often kind of advancing a kind of me-first uh, mindset when it comes to everything from, um, you know, money to uh, career. And what I show in the book is that couples who kind of steer clear of that me-first mindset and cultivating instead of kind of a we first or a family first mindset are much more likely to be flourishing um, and much more likely to be avoiding divorce court. Um, and so I think that there are some key ideas in the book that kind of give people a sense of how they can forge a good marriage that is much less likely to land in divorce court. So you know, I, I mentioned money, for instance. So we've in the research, um, both that I've done, others have done that folks who have a joint checking account are much more likely to be happy in their marriages and to avoid divorce. What's fascinating about this is there's actually an experimental study that was done by um, some psychologists headed up at Indiana University, and they randomly assigned uh, newlywed couples to joint accounts, their own decision, and to separate accounts. And the folks who were assigned to separate accounts did the worst in those first two years of married life, and the folks who were assigned to joint accounts did the best. In wow. terms of the quality of their marriage, so pretty rigorous evidence that kind of cultivating this, this sense of you know we-ness, even when it comes to your money, really kind of um, translates into a stronger marriage. Um, we also see the couples who attend church, for instance, regularly about thirty to fifty percent less likely to get divorced. Um, depending upon the you know the data set. Um, we see that you know, reports of commitment, not surprisingly, are one of the, the strongest predictors of relationship quality as well. So, the point I'm making in the book, in part, is that there are some ways to avoid, you know, a lot of the traps that people fall into that can, um, you know, make them, you know, fail um, at this yeah. uh, at this most fundamental challenge and this is most fundamental uh, relationship for many of us
0: yeah this is that's great what that's that's one of the things i think is really cool about this book because again you know so you no know, nathan comes at it from the you know happily married man uh stage which i've i have gotten to witness both you know to you know my my great joy to see my friend happy and some you know faint disgust at how happy they are um
1: <laughs> how dare they find happiness Sorry. And I at
0: this i come at this from uh from, you know, from some somebody single who talks about who's a guy who has right. what you've as you described, you know, had some trouble you know, uh, uh, finding finding the right person. But the, but I think you make an excellent point is that what I see in a lot of my peers is a kind of pessimism that, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of like a lottery when you get married. It's like you, you might find the right person or you might not and it's kind of a roll of the dice whether or not the marriage is successful and the odds are you know at best they're 50 percent. Right. you know at best it's 50 percent to have a happy marriage or to to have a marriage at all and then to have a happy marriage is even less likely than that and so it's really a very bad deal unless of course you can make enough money so that if something bad happens then you can have a way out of that i think one of the interesting things about your book is that you do lay out actually on average most you know married people are happy and there are things you can do to right. Um, make it even more likely that you will mm. have a happy marriage within those marriages. So, um, so it's, and you do make this also this point in the book, which is that not everybody can or should get married, but you at the least shouldn't decide not to get married based on untruths, which is a lot of people are, are choosing to put off or not do marriage based on false ideas. Um, So I mean, one thing, I, but it is, you also make the point that, you know, you kind of, you talk um, that, people who are higher educated and wealthier tend to both um, say marriage is a bad deal and we should change, you know, we should get away from marriage, but also are the most likely to actually get married and decide to go into that. Wow. So I guess, so I guess I, I would like to sort of a two prong sort of a, a two prong question, maybe, but you, but um, what are the aspects of marriage that make it so that it's more conducive to um, having happiness as well as kind of like the, you know, other things that you can do to make that more likely, but also, you know, it's one thing for the average person, like Nathan says, to have anecdotal kind of reasons for thinking that marriage is a bad deal, but, you know, for people in, you know, who are highly educated and have access to all the same data that you have on this, you know, why, and are also treating themselves to get married. Why is it that they are kind of perpetuating so I guess, yeah, the two-pronged question. One is more of the aspects of marriage that are make it conducive to happiness and why the people who know, should know this stuff aren't, uh, aren't preaching it.
2: Yeah, that's a great set of questions, Joseph. So I talk in, in the book about kind of the way in which many of our elites talk left and walk right when it comes to yeah. marriage and family more generally. And in terms of understanding why they're talking left, I think I would say a couple of things. One is that really since... Um, The Moynihan Report, you know, there's been a kind of a view on the left that kind of talking about marriage and family is coded in a racial way. They don't want to kind of, you know, um, you know, be seen as uh, making any kind of negative comments about, you know, racial differences in, you know, in family life in the U.S. Um, Understandable, but that's that's part of the historical legacy. But beyond that, I think there's also kind of a deep desire to basically signal that you're progressive you know, on any number of issues. And so what's really happened since the the 70s is that kind of being in favor of a variety um, of family forms or diverse families, you know, has become coded as as a signal uh, for being more progressive. Um, And so people want to kind of give that signal, whether they're, you know, in the academy, like many of my colleagues, um, or in journalism or some other kind of elite, you know, profession, and in certain, obviously, elite circles as well, Um, even though they might kind of personally appreciate marriage for themselves um, or even kind of like in private conversations, acknowledge the benefits that, you know, follow from marriage. I mean, I've talked to deans at UVA who kind of privately agree with me, but would never publicly kind of signal their agreement with me because it's not, you know, kind of progressive Mm. to do that. Right. So I think that's part of the story as well. Um, And then, too, we live in a country that's profoundly individualistic. Um, wow. And so I think there's also a way in which kind of, you know, talking too much about family or or marriage um, is seen as, you know, insufficiently kind of um, sort of um, appreciative of the value of, of personal freedom and, yeah. and choice. Um, that's particularly true for more educated Americans. So yeah. those are some of the reasons why I think, and also then finally, just sociologically, we know that. You know, we tend to be very much influenced by our social networks and what we see on social media. We read in the media uh, online as well these days. And again, it's typically pretty left-leaning on all these uh, big questions. So people are kind of publicly, you know, signaling that they're on board with a more progressive approach to family. But privately, what I point out in the book is that oftentimes... They're pretty marriage-minded. Um, they get married before they have kids. Um, they stay married once they are married. Um, and when it comes to kind of you know gender, work, and family, uh, even though there's a kind of public embrace of gender equality or androgyny or or nowadays gender fluidity, um, what you do see is that in upper middle class families. Um, there's a norm that husbands are reliable, you know, breadwinners, often very successful breadwinners. Um, so that kind of, you know, classic piece is so very much a part of, you know, their families. So, and of course, there there are financial benefits that flow from stable marriage, and there are sure. also financial benefits too that flow from having a reliable provider or breadwinner in the mix, um, in the form of, you know, a husband still. So I think that explains in part why. Um, we do see this sort of talking left, walking right pattern play out among many elites uh, today. Um, you know, because I guess to put it in very simple terms, there's a benefit socially and culturally from signaling that you're progressive on family issues. There's also a tremendous social and financial benefit that flows from getting and staying married, both for you, mm-hmm. your spouse, and your children. So it's a sort of weird dynamic playing out where, you know, people have kind of this incentive to talk left on family issues, signal that they're kind of a right-thinking person, um, and at the same time operate along fairly neo-traditional lines in their own uh, family. So that's sort of the talking left, walking right piece. Now, in terms of answering the other question that you mentioned, what the book argues is there's basically five pillars of strong marriages today. And those pillars are communion, children, commitment, cash, and community. And in brief, what I mean by community is a kind of this we before me thing going where people are cultivating a sense of intimacy through things like date nights, but also kind of cultivating a sense of being on the same team with things like how they organize their money. So that's the community piece that we touched on a bit uh, earlier. Um, When it comes to children, what we see is a recognition that marriage matters um, not just for the couple, but for their kids. Mm -hmm. And that sort of shapes, particularly kind of how they handle difficult challenging situations. You're just much more likely to kind of persevere in the face of the ordinary difficulties that affect most of us who've been married for any number of years. Um, Particularly, I think you see that among more religious couples and Asian-American couples as well. It's kind of recognition their marriage matters for their kids. Um, The third C is commitment. And kind of just sort of prioritizing the welfare of your spouse is part of that. Um, But I also operationalize it in the book in terms of prioritizing sexual fidelity, in terms of sort of how you live your life, um, the values that you kind of embrace, um, you know, exercising some prudence, like when you're, if you're going on some kind of work trip to Hawaii, you know, it sort of shapes how you kind of conduct yourself um, with your, um, you know, your office mates. Um, you know, whatever it is three thousand miles away from your spouse, um and then also kind of a commitment to kind of marital permanence um mm-hmm. and I think if we were having this conversation even like fifteen years ago, uh Joseph, a lot of what one might say about like you know like fidelity, for instance, would seem kind of like commonsensical, kind of but we are seeing surprisingly um pretty large religious and partisan and ideological divides emerging around norms related to fidelity. Um, in recent years. Um, there's been obviously talk about polyamory, for instance, and the way in which couples kind of think about those newer options today is heavily conditioned by things like ideology and religion in ways that you could obviously predict. Sure. Um, sure. But again, couples who embrace kind of classic norms about fidelity and commitment are more likely to thrive. The four C is cash. And not surprising, couples who have a home, for instance, large assets together are more likely to be flourishing both in terms of the quality, especially stability of their marriages. There's also a gender piece on cash. It's especially important that the husband is stably employed. Um, One study from Harvard, for instance, found that when the wife lost her job, no effect on divorce uh, for that couple. When the husband lost his job, increased the risk of divorce by about uh, one third. Um, wow. So that just kind of gives you a sense of how, like, even today in the 21st century, there's there are s- aspects of marriage and family that are still gendered. Um, and then the fifth C is community, and the point there, right, is that we are, you know, we're kind of birds of a feather and we flock together. And so we look at like the work of Nick, Nicholas Christakis at Yale, sociologist, and what he and his colleagues find is that if your sister or if your best friend got divorced. In the face of some kind of ordinary marital difficulty, your odds of divorce are much higher. Mm -hmm. Contest if your sister or your best friend uh, managed to kind of make it through, you know, some kind of ordinary difficulty, maybe, you know, one spouse was suffering from depression or there was um, one spouse who lost their job or, you know, whatever else it might be, um, you're much more likely to persist in your own marriage. And so the point about community is that kind of who you surround yourself with um, as a couple is enormously consequential. And so if you really want your marriage to thrive and survive, um, then you need to kind of pick your friends carefully. Um, And obviously, there's sort of a secular dynamic there. People can find family-oriented couples in the secular world. But in, in that chapter of my book, I talk a lot about the sort of role that religion plays for a decent minority of americans particularly married americans and just point out some of the ways in which shared um, church attendance is linked to more marital quality greater marital stability and also i think probably surprisingly for some folks uh more sex and better sex too. Me so fine. Me to really hmm.
1: That that's really really interesting because what What's interesting to me is uh, as a non-academic who doesn't know all these studies, uh, just a married guy. And what I have found in the past, I think we've been married, I should probably know this, um, (laughs) for almost five years now. And with the data that you're sharing, um, to me, we've talked about kind of these anecdotal um, uh, understandings culturally of people being scared to be married, but as a married guy who um, isn't a marriage that I enjoy, that I like, it's funny all the data that you mentioned are things that i have found to be really positive elements in my life as a result of having made that decision i have found that there is um re- really these these are immeasurable you know I, I can say them they sound like oh that's nice No, these are measurable uh, immeasurably effective in my life and and substantive when it comes to my well-being my mental well-being my emotional well-being um being with someone who i know can you talk about that permanence who i know that even um at my worst, even when going you mentioned depression, going through things that I have someone who will walk through every season of life. That's immensely comforting to me. And it's immense like it, it helps me even in those times um, to move through them more smoothly and to find myself at a better place at the end. To have someone who is in the financial journey with me, who is uh even struggling with me. All right, how are we gonna pay rent? How are we gonna figure out how to put a down payment in this house? Whatever it might be, doing that with someone is so much less alone. And you talked about the community aspect. I can't tell you how um, meaningful it is to me that um. That I have someone who is a part of a team, who is who is there with me, who who knows me deeply. Um, you know that we we've heard this kind of concept of a continuancy of narrative, that someone who can see me grow in different periods of life, and so all of the data that you just provided um, really comports to my. Lived personal experience, and so again, like we we said earlier, you know, this is marriage is not necessarily for everyone, but it is something to to really consider, particularly. And you pointed this out if you find the right spouse. And so I'll let Joseph get his last question in here. But I did want to say real quick, I thought it was really interesting that one of the, the uh, reasons you gave that people are are a little bit. Um, trepidatious when it comes to this concept is because we live in a very individualistic uh, here right. in the West kind of society, right. and there is one kind of thing you do give up um, when you get married, and you know you find this in scripture too, right? Um, which is you become one flesh. You are giving up the the only you part of your your psyche, your mind, your life, your your bed, right. your house. Um, but there is a real beauty and and happiness that can be found there when you find the right person. So, um, I'll ask you one last question and then I'll let Joseph pile whatever he, um, whatever he wants to ask before we wrap this up. My last question, um, yeah, would be, how do you find that? Like, you know, I, I feel like I That was out. literally I what like...
0: I was going to ask. Okay, really... good. Okay. We have,
1: <laughs> because I, I feel like I, I, um, accidentally stumbled into it. I found a wonderful woman and somehow, you know, five years later, we, we both enjoy our marriage and strong, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't, it would be hard for me to dissect and figure out what it was without a lot of like introspection, which I will do um, eventually. Um, but really studying. But you're the expert. How would you tell someone other who is single, who is going? Okay, well, I, I take your word for it. That the, the data backs this up. But how do I go about finding what you mentioned earlier in the episode? Actually, a good spouse to do this and find a happy marriage with.
0: Forget about out here. Just address in here. A single, a single yeah. people. Out yeah, like,
1: tell Joseph <laughs> this. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. Right. No, I mean, I'll just, I'll say. No, I mean, I'll just to yeah. say, because in your book, you you deal with this, that, you know, because there is a the group of people who are saying, oh, I'm down on marriage because I don't think it's good. But there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, I do want to have a good marriage, but I can't, I'm struggling to find someone like that. And and there, there are real challenges in society today that make it harder to do that. So, yes, to right. to, um, just want to give you credit for really addressing that very head on in the book so yeah what would you tell someone who is single um how to the right way to go about finding a person that a relationship can last and be happy
2: with yeah so i think um and let me just say i'll say, say on this on this particular question because they've already gotten you know a piece the new york times kind of attacking the the premise of the book and one of the key arguments you know by this new york times writer was that look you know for women today it's just impossible to find you know um a good guy out there basically there's just mm-hmm. sort of a Uh, You know, basically a dearth of good men out there. And so for a lot of women, they can't find someone who's worthy of marriage. Of course, there are some guys who would say the same thing about about kind of women as well. So um, I do think that there are some obviously larger, you know, cultural and economic currents kind of running through our society that are making it more challenging. Um, I've written for The Atlantic about kind of ideological polarization where women you know, not all women, but a large minority of men are moving to the left in pretty profound ways. And a small minority of men, though, are moving more to the right. But that creates a gap, you know, between uh, women and men ideologically, which can be challenging to bridge or to navigate. And that comes up in the book. Um, I also, though, kind of get the message, too, that for a lot of them, and they feel like the guys in their world are not um, sufficiently responsible, commitment-oriented, Um, aren't really flourishing in school or work in their late teens and in their 20s. Um, And um, and I think these are all legitimate concerns that they have. Um, Men, I think, that I've spoken to are having difficulty finding someone kind of feel like either standards are too high sometimes for that initial date um, or that the women they meet, um, you know, aren't necessarily kind of oriented towards um, commitment, you know, from their perspective. So there are a lot of challenges out there that people have to navigate today that I think are uniquely, you know, difficult and um, and problematic. Having said all that, I would say a couple of things constructively. Number one, don't listen to your your parents and your peers about age at marriage. A lot it of my is. students at UVA are basically told by their parents not to date seriously at UVA. That you know, college is a time for education, a time for college preparation, sorry, career preparation, not a time for love. It's certainly not a time to think about marriage. That's particularly today a huge mistake. Um, Given the challenges people are facing when it comes to finding a good spouse, um, there is no reason whatsoever to kind of eliminate probably the the best environment that most of us will experience in terms of finding a wide range of potential spouses Um, and that my wife at UVA when we were both fourth years or seniors at UVA. Um, we didn't, it took us three years after graduating to kind of get it all together, but I met her at UVA and I think people should be open to meeting, you know, their spouse in college or in their early twenties is sort of the point I'm making. you don't have to be 30 to get married is, is one. So one point here is just sort of like, you can get married in your twenties. There's no, <laughs> there's no law for, um, you know, many elites who think you have to wait till you're 30, you know, that's, that's not true. You, you might meet a great person when you're 20, 21, 22, whatever. That you should be open to that. So that's one thing is don't let kind of being in your early 20s be an obstacle to getting serious with someone about marriage. That's one thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is you know just be aware of the fact that um, you know many folks in their early 20s have been raised in some kind of religious context. I was went to UVA was not did not practice you know, any kind of real faith for the first three years of my time at the University of Virginia, but got more involved in a church community in my fourth year, um, and do find that people who are plugged into a religious community are more likely, you know, to find someone to date and marry than the folks who are who are not plugged into a religious community. So if you're Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, whatever, um, I think it's just important to sort of underline that it's often easier to meet someone in a religious community uh it's not a guarantee obviously by any means but it's often easier um, than it would be in other contexts because um, marriage is prioritized obviously in many religious traditions um so to, i would certainly stress the religious beast for those who have any kind of religious orientation or bone in their body um the third thing that i would say is kind of you know let your friends know let your kin know that you're interested in getting married or interested in getting serious with someone and, and people i mean i'm I'm constantly kind of, we have a lot of students, you know, coming through our home, um, and many of them are very marriage minded, um, great people. And so we're kind of like looking around for, you know, potential boyfriends and girlfriends for them. So the kind of matchmaking idea, I think is definitely, um, uh, is worth kind of, um, trying to pursue, um, in a sort of informal way, um, be attentive to the geography. You know, people don't appreciate, but there are sex ratios. That are quite divergent from, say, Manhattan to Palo Alto. Um, a friend of mine, Joseph Price, an economist, wrote a piece about this um, in an academic journal, but you can kind of run the numbers and you're gonna see that there are some places where it's gonna be easier to meet someone, you know, um, you know, for for dating and, and potentially marriage than other places. And it's worth kind of thinking about if you're gonna be looking for a job or a career in some place, you know. Maybe you want to move to a location where there are there are more options for you when it comes to dating and marrying. Um, and the final thing is in you know, it is the case that a lot of people are meeting online today. um, and you know, just, and just to be kind of judicious about which platforms you use. So I think obviously, Tinder, I don't think is necessarily going to be a, you know, an ideal platform for folks who are yeah. more marriage minded. Yeah, there are religious dating sites that are that I've you know, seen friends use successfully. There's also a new site called Keeper that uses AI to kind of match people who are marriage minded. Wow. Um, you know, and it's very kind of smart about doing it as well. So I think kind of just being careful about which kinds of, um, you know, dating platforms you um, seek out is also part of the potential solution. So those are yeah. some ideas about how people can kind of increase their odds of meeting someone who would be worthy of um, Getting married too—that's awesome. That is—that's fantastic. And listen to our
1: listeners out there. I hope that there was something in there that you can kind of take and actually act out. And and I encourage you, if you have some trepidation about this, if if you know you heard some data today, you heard the expert talk on it, but dive in a little more. Um, and I hope there was some something in this conversation that at least can pique your interest um, to dive in and understand this better. Because um, as a married guy, I think marriage is great. Um, so I'm a little biased, but, (laughs) but thank you so much for being here with us today. I think this is really fantastic. It's a really, uh, relevant conversation and I'm, I really think our listeners are going to like it, but we're now going to move to the closing segment of our show. We can can, uh, give you some resources, how to dive in further, uh, Joseph, take it away.
0: Yes. So we are our our classic segment. Everybody loves. At least nobody has told us they don't love it. uh, The blesses and curses of the week where we take a work of art, media or resource on our topic and recommend it, i.e. bless it or diss it, i.e. curse it. So we um, we always give our, our guests an opportunity either to participate or not. As some of them are very kind and don't want to curse uh, anything. Um, but uh, we'll uh, go first just to uh, show you kind of how how we do it, how it's done. And then you can, if you'd like to, join uh, in at the end. So Nathan, I know both of us, sometimes we don't have our blessings and curses ready. We kind of just wing it, but we both kind of worked on it beforehand today. So Nathan, uh, what was uh,
1: what are your blessings and curses? Yeah, I'm good. I'm doing a movie and a book today for my bless. Nice. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, the first one I'll do is The Vow. I really I this is a movie that came out years ago. It's very Nicholas Sparksy. I know it's not, you know, high art, and really cool. And all the film bros are gonna be mad at me. But the reason i love this movie is i think it was one of the first kind of movies of its ilk in that kind of genre that really was honest about the difficulties of marriage it didn't um over romanticize love it it, what it is romanticized and talked about commitment and the beauty of commitment and it shows um essentially it's based on a true story very loosely um about a man a wife and a husband who are in a car wreck and she loses uh, her memory of the last five years, which means she lost his memory of him and their marriage. And so the whole movie is about him trying to win her back and why he believes this to be a valuable thing, even though it's really difficult. But it's, it was interesting to see uh, a movie in a genre that's usually so fantasical about love show um, still beautiful, still, you know, it has that. Um, feelings of you know you're in the valentine's day mood this is definitely a movie you'll enjoy it has all the 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 tropes but at the same time it really has a beautiful kind of honesty about um, why commitment is worth it even when it's difficult in and why it's a beautiful and good thing to pursue um so i really and i and it was the first time i really Saw Channing Tatum be a really incredible actor um, as well, and uh, you know because he does comedy Would've and action, thought, yeah. but, he, <laughs> no, but he got to do some drama, and I really thought he was really fantastic. As is Rachel McAdams, as she always is. And if you want to dig up. I actually did an interview with Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum. This was years ago when it came out. So you're going to have to uh, do a deep dive into Google to find my interview with them. Um, but there's some really great comments and thoughts. I wrote an article about it years ago. So if you find it, please let me know because I'm not doing the work. Um, but it's out there somewhere in the interwebs. Um, then I'm going to bless a book. My, you know, I usually am caught up in either reading philosophy, theology, or just like um, trashy uh, 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 Mystery novels, uh, pulpy mystery novels. Um, but once uh, or once or twice a year, my wife and I try to go through just a, a marriage book uh, together, just because we find it it's good. Um, and it helps us kind of think new things and new places. So this one is not a an academic book by any means, but we did find it helpful. Kind of the concept of the book was really interesting about love, and uh, all, as almost a math equation in a bank, and how you have to invest in each other and you have to invest in the currency of the other person. But it's called His Needs, Her Needs. Um, I'm sure you were aware of it. Um, and you might have thoughts on it. You can tell me if it's I should not recommend it. But we enjoyed it and we found it to be helpful in our marriage as we started con- kind of conceptualizing, oh, I need to invest in the bank of her love, in the currency that she receives it in. And so it was just a really simple but helpful um, kind of concept. And I found it to, uh, to be beneficial to our marriage and to our relationship. Both of us did. Um, so those are my blesses. As far as curse, I'm going with an oldie and goodie. I'm sure I've cursed this before. Um, probably and this one of our really- top
0: cursed Uh, it could
1: be well this this movie is more metaphorical of of a lot of movies that have come out but it's where they romanticize um leaving your spouse where and and not for like any great reason you know of course we, we understand that there's abuse and and affairs and infidelity and there's real reasons um uh to leave someone to to break off but one it's not an easy thing or 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 a clean thing um or it's definitely not a fun beautiful cool, funny thing to do. Um, And the movie I'm cursing is Epre Love, because I feel like this was really one of the very beginning. Well, I'm going to curse the book too, but I haven't read it, but I can assume from the movie, I probably wouldn't enjoy it terribly much. Um, But I I think it really kind of was in my mind, um, the beginning of this sentiment that leaving your spouse when you're bored um, is a really cool and fun and beautiful thing. And you'll find a more fulfilling life outside of it um, with a younger man uh, traveling the world or younger men traveling the world or younger women, whatever it might be. And I think it's had a detrimental effect that, and, you know, it's chicken and egg thing. I don't know if the movie came as a result of or of uh, whatever, but I think it's, it has a symbiotic relationship with culture, art. Um, but yeah, so I, I would curse this because I think it ultimately is untrue. Um, every divorce I've ever seen um, uh, in, in my life and in the people around me, even if it was necessary, um, very often it wasn't necessary, but even if it was, it's not good. It's not beautiful. It's not fun. And it's not clean or adventurous. Um, it's devastating. And so that's the one thing I would say is that, um, yeah, encourage people to believe that there is way more fulfillment and happiness, um, when you get bored with someone. And so I think monogamy and commitment is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And, uh, yeah, so I'm droning on, but yes, uh, pray, love I'm cursing you again. I'm very sorry.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I I know that uh, you, sir, uh, you mentioned Eat, Pray, Love in your book. Uh, and, oh, and so yes, and so I know that uh, you agree with Nathan's sentiments.
1: Uh, well, we're singing from the same songbook,
2: there, Nathan. Okay, good. <laughs>
1: All right, we're in good. <laughs> I, mean, I got the expert to agree with me. I'm good. Um, so yes, okay, I'll try
0: to go through mine fairly quickly. Um, so that uh, our guest has a chance to to uh, uh take his time with his if he wants. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm gonna bless. Um how i met your mother actually for its portrayal of uh, married uh beautiful i think nuanced but also beautiful portrayal of a married couple in marshall and lily um
1: because they are Mm. didn't we curse how i met your mother literally last episode this (laughs) is crazy
0: (laughs) we did curse it earlier yes but um but it's you know because people talk about and focus on ted and his you know uh, a search for the one and the the both the beautiful but also maybe toxic ways that they talk about uh ways to find the what but when it comes to actually portraying what a beautiful but real marriage looks like um marshall and lily as you just follow them throughout their whole uh series as people who love each other deeply but also have conflicts they also have things that they and they also have a group of friends that they have community with and it really does just show what it looks like to go through just ordinary life with a spouse together in ways that most sitcoms let alone the rest of uh, culture don't really portray or show. Um, and the way that again they they're beautiful in their own life, but they're also invested in their friends' lives and how they do have fights and they do have things, but it never, you're always like, man, what they were always there to remind Ted, the protagonist, yeah, this is what I want. And um, and so I think that that they they are one of the most beautiful portrayals of it in modern uh culture today and it was true and beautiful um so I, I curse I mean God bless how I Met your mother for that one of my favorite shows and it's always nice to uh have a reason to bless it for our episodes um I curse two movies that um like Nathan. I think that they they make uh leaving your spouse for trivial things because you're not getting, Uh, fulfillment as you talk about in your book the um me first of view of of what love is supposed to look like rather than we first um is um uh the one i love uh which um is i forget the actor's name he's a great actor great indie guy but um but and also elizabeth moss is in it um but uh that and then also recent movie foe uh starring sarah Sharonan. Um, which I love the book again. Nathan recommended it to me, and the book is great. But both of those movies basically say, if I'm not being fulfilled in some way, then the are my spouse is is sense doing harm to me, and so it's good for me to replace them with someone else. in In some cases, it's you know, a, they actually both of us do the use the sci fi thing of like it's either a robot or like a double, you know, of some kind, and you should replace them with that because that's better for you to do that with. Which is you know, incredibly toxic. Just you know, what? Regardless, you are talking about marriage just in life. To say, oh, I'm going to replace people in my life because of self fulfillment is a not a great, great way to go through life. So, going to curse that. Actually, I'm going to circle back around just in a really shameless way to um, bless your book, the Get Married book, just because it is a good. If you are, if you've been helped at all by the what we've talked about today, and want to dive in more. The book is a great resource, both in terms of statistics and in terms of anecdotes and stories about all of these things. Anyway, now I shall move it over to our guest. Eric, would you like, or is there anything that you would like to bless and or curse today?
2: Yeah, I'll just curse the red pill right, Joseph and Nathan. Um, you know, and I (laughs) I we've talked about Andrew Andrew Tate and, and Pearl Davis now. Um, Pearl's, you know, current star is rising. Um, and she's obviously very critical of marriage. She thinks that. You know, marriage is a bad deal for men today. Um, she's called it a death sentence for men. Um, and I've been, you know, I've you been hear that, about, It's a
0: death sentence for
2: you. <laughs> right, for men. Yeah.
1: We're very sorry for your marriage.
2: Um, Nathan <laughs> looks pretty alive to me. I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, and I've been critiquing folks in the left who've been going after marriage, you know, for many, many years. But now we have this newer thing on the right, the red bill right, as I said, where people are saying marriage is a bad deal for men. Um and I think with the left you know, folks who are kind of critiquing marriage from kind of a feminist perspective and the red pill right from a kind of a manosphere perspective. Mm. What they both don't appreciate is that for most of us folks, you know, having a spouse, um, as Nathan was saying at the beginning of our conversation, makes us a better person. You know, yeah. we have to die to ourselves on a regular basis. We have to grow in virtue. Um, and, you know, living a generous life, um, mm. you know, in the context of marriage and parenthood, or if you're single in the context of some kind of community of one sort or another, whether it's a church or you know a volunteering uh, operation or even in, in the workplace, um, what we see is that Americans, uh, people across the world who are living more generous lives cool. are more likely to be flourishing and right. kind of retreating into your own quarter with a kind of me first mindset, which is kind of like the takeaway, I think, for the Andrew Tate and Pearl Davises of the world on the right. And for assuming a lot of folks who write in more left leaning mainstream, you know, venues, um, that feminist perspective. Um, you know, it's just um it's a recipe uh long term for, you know, disaster for being mm. um, lonely and, you know, angry and uh and cynical um so yeah. i think i just want to sort of basically um you know encourage folks not to succumb to the the naysayers on the left and the right who um you know who would like to go after um you know the importance of in this case marriage and family
1: what i love is that pretty much at the end of this podcast what we've all come to is we all believe in love and we yeah. have the data to prove it so uh, this is yeah. so much fun fantastic conversation if any of our listeners want to get in contact with your work and see more of what you've done and particularly get your um, forthcoming book, where can they find your work and where can they find
2: your book? So HarperCollins has a, has a page for Get Married, um, the book, and then I'm easy to follow on Twitter, Brad Wilcox IFS. And then the more kind of uh, academic side can be found at familystudies.org as well. So those are some places to find this um, this work. Amazing.
1: Cool. Um, if you want to get in touch with The Overthinkers, go to the theoverthinkersjournal.world. Also join our online Facebook group, The Overthinkers. We'd love to have you there. If you want to get in touch with me, go to nathanclarkson.me. You can also search my name, Nathan Clarkson, on any of the socials, and you can find all my books on Amazon, um, probably all my movies there too. <laughs> Joseph, how about you? You can find uh,
0: me on any of the socials as well, Joseph Holmes or Normal Guy. You can also uh, find a me my website josepholmstudios.com and of course you can find my regular uh my culture and film criticism at religionunplugged.com thank you so much uh, Dr. Brad Wilcox for being here thank you all for joining us and remember if it's worth thinking about it's worth overthinking about